0: You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. That's a pretty amazing thought that God would care for us. When we look in the mirror, there are a lot of things that we can see. Um, we can see the outward appearance when we look in the mirror but the the reality is if we stay there long enough we can start to to think about what insides are represented um, what is going on on the inside of us and recognize that 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 same God that we sing about that provided salvation for us he not just sees the outside so he he doesn't just see how you dress up for church on Sunday morning or don't dress up. He doesn't see that as much as he sees the inside and at the same time still cares for us. Yeah, I've, I've got a question. What does God want to do with, with this fellowship? What does God want to do with this body of believers? Because when we sit back and we, and we take a step back and we look in the mirror, it is so easy to take a mirror and set it up in such a way that when I look in the mirror, I don't necessarily see myself, but I see everybody that's around me. Um, there's a spot downstairs, and those of you that have a class downstairs um, by the, in the conference room or cut through there on a regular basis, you understand this, but there is a corner there that, is an ex- that has the potential for being a dangerous corner. You know what corner I'm talking about. So when you come to that corner, and if somebody else is coming out of the restrooms and coming down the other way and you're coming from the conference room, there is no mirror by which to see anybody coming from the opposite direction. And so on a normal basis on on during during the week because it's so quiet that it's not really unusual to have somebody come around that corner and scare one of the secretaries. It just kind of happens. And it's not, it's not a planned thing. I almost wish it were because then you could kind of take credit for it and laugh about it. But it just, it just really just happens. And, and if we had one of those mirrors that was kind of curved and we could set it up in the corner, then you could see what was coming. But you realize even in a mirror like that, when you look at it, although your image may be in the mirror, you're really looking beyond yourself to something else. And so there are a lot of things that can be done with a mirror besides just look at you. And yet when we come to the Lord's table, when we come to the Lord's supper, it's really about taking that mirror and not so much that I can see what's ahead of me or not so much that I can see the dangers that lurk around there or even that get directed to somebody else that is sitting next to me that I could elbow every once in a while. It's not about that. It's about having that mirror directly facing you, and saying, God, where am I when it comes to my relationship to you? We're going to talk about some things in in a new series that we begin this morning, but as we get started, we're going to start with the Lord's Supper meal. It wasn't a full-blown meal. It was more of a continental breakfast, gather some sweets, um, fill up on some sugar, and then take whatever sugar's left over to the classes to give to the children. Some adults may have had some, but for those parents that will be receiving children later, just so you know what happened. Um, but we had a meal back there, and meals are significant, they're important. The Lord's Supper is no different. It's a meal when it was first celebrated, it had deep, rich meaning. It was a meal that celebrated the exodus of the people out of Egypt, And so in in that meal, there's a lot of symbolism. There's the bitterness of life in Egypt. There's a sweetness about moving to a promised land. There there are the layers of the unleavened bread that, that talk about and remind us of the sacrifice and the positions of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. All those were part of a meal. They remind us of God's covenant with His people. It also reminds us of the sacrifice that was made by Jesus on Calvary on our behalf. And so Jesus takes it there. When he meets with the disciples in that upper room on the the night before his death, he, he takes us to that place of not just an exodus out of Egypt, but that place of understanding that the body would be broken for us and the blood would be shed on our behalf. So Jesus takes it a bit further. It gives the disciples a a really vivid picture of what it means to be a servant leader. Because you know in that same room is where Jesus took off his outer garments and he wrapped the towel around himself and he went went around the table and washed the disciples' feet. So he gave them that picture. It was also a fresh understanding of unity among that group of guys. As Jesus did that, it gives us a picture of what we need to remember when we come to this table. The meal today reminds us of God's life, <coughs> excuse me, God's gift of life for us and the unity of the body that is necessary under the banner of the, of the Savior. And so this meal is more than just a meal Sorry. Thank you. I've actually got a pocket of those. I was just debating whether I wanted to deal with it or not. But you, led by the Holy Spirit, brought me this, I thank you. I've I've referred to her as the Holy Spirit before on occasion, too. So God can God use uses her. So this meal is an indication of of Jesus' sacrifice, re, reminds us that that which was expressed in that first meal is for us corporately, but it's also for us personally. And so when we go to this meal, it's a picture of us taking that mirror and turning it to ourselves and considering where we are in Christ. And so we'll start there, realizing that this meal is a representation of that sacrifice and unity. And so the meal is met for those that belong to the fellowship of believers. And notice I didn't say the fellowship of Ebenezer. It's a fellowship of believers. So if you've accepted Christ and have been baptized signifying outwardly that a change is taking place inside, then we welcome you to the table. Uh, otherwise, we, we just ask that you would refrain from partaking of the Lord's Supper because this is really a Lord's Supper built around the idea of the unity of the body. And so we would invite those that are baptized believers to be part of this and then to celebrate with us what God has done in your life personally and what He's doing in our, in our life corporately. And so... Deacons, as you guys come and and take your place this morning, this is what Paul wrote, and he's writing it to the Corinthian church on an occasion where he's talking to them about unity, and he's talking about when they come to this place of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Because he's he's understanding and what he hears is there's disunity among the body. And in that disunity, they're coming to the Lord's Supper wanting for themselves. But that's not what this meal is about. This meal isn't about wanting for us. This meal is about celebrating what God has done. And so what Paul wrote, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then when that was done, he, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He didn't say in remembrance of yourself. It was in remembrance of him. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the believers in Corinth were to take a different understanding of what this meal was supposed to be about. To to really consider what Jesus had done. And not just do it in a way that becomes a, a passive exercise but to be an active exercise on our part to consider where we're at in Christ and then to continue to do it until Jesus returns. So we do it regularly because of that. So as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for who you are. God, we thank you for Paul's words that remind us, but I know that he's just—he's quoting and he's remembering back to that supper on the night before you were betrayed. And so, Father, um, God, I, I pray that as we partake of this meal, that you will allow us to sit in front of our own mirrors. And Father, consider whether we're out for us, if we're moving that mirror around to somebody else. God, whatever it is that we need to adjust in our life so that when we come to this table, it really is about unity and fellowship with you. And so God, guide the next few moments as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and then continue as we worship together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a new series. It's in preparation for a revival weekend, scheduled time where we consider revival on April 12th through 14th. So if you would, if you would just mark on your calendar, April 12th, 13th, and 14th, just mark it down, say, I'm not going to schedule anything those three days. Because what's going to happen over those three days is there'll be a team that's going to come in and we're going to go through some revival services, some general sessions and some small groups, that's going to challenge us in our walk with God. It's going to be what, what some would go, okay, revival services would be is six o'clock or 6:30, or seven o'clock every night during the week? Well, we're going to do it. We're going to do that sort of in a weekend setting. And so beginning on that Friday evening, we'll come together for a time of worship and a time of challenge. And we will meet a little bit in small groups on Friday night. We'll do the same thing on Saturday and Saturday night, and then come together Sunday morning for a wrap-up. And then on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, we'll get together and hear testimonies of how God worked during the weekend. And it's really going to propel us forward as a church in, in several different areas. And so we'll just kind of hold on to that. But it's an awakening weekend, the 12th, 13th, and 14th of April. And so this series of messages, called, uh, the series is called Awaken. This series is preparation for what's going to happen that weekend. And so as we get ready, um, I want to ask a couple of questions. How would you define national emergency? Seems to get defined several ways right now, doesn't it? And we can can define it in a lot of different ways. We can define it outside the borders of our our nation. We can define it within the borders of our nation, or we can define it at the borders of our nation. And there's a lot of different opinions, and we could talk about um, a lot of things regarding national emergency. What I did is I did an online search. I went to Google, like, you would do and i just googled national emergency and and in 0.49 seconds i had 33.2 million hits i did not look at them all not even close but when i started looking at them there were several things that popped up and several things that kind of rose to the forefront in discussions about national security or national emergency and so when we take national emergency and apply it to our southwest border, well, let's just narrow it down as a nation, that's part of the discussion right now is, is that a national emergency? And where are we going to go with that? Is it legal? Is it illegal? Well, that's, that's a whole nother thing. But there are multiple issues when you consider that particular area of our country and border walls. I'm just going to list them because we're going to move beyond that. But just listing, thinking about them complicates the whole narrative of that idea of should we build a wall. There's national sovereignty, financial responsibility, human trafficking, drugs, health care, infrastructure, legal, legal versus illegal. And then there's the allegiance to the gospel. What does it mean for believers? Is it God opening a door or closing a door? What does it mean for us to share with those that have come into our country, whether legally or illegally, and what is our responsibility? There's a lot of pieces to that puzzle. And I can't sit at this place and say, I know the answer to all of those because where you may have an argument on one particular piece of that, I can turn around and pick out another one of those topics and say, but what about this? So it's not as simple as just saying, yeah, we can do this, and it doesn't affect anything else. It affects a lot of things. And I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong regarding that. What I am going to tell you is there is a greater emergency that we ought to be more concerned about than that emergency that we find in the news. The greater emergency or crisis that exists cannot be found in a solution from governmental policy, stump speeches, or political rhetoric. It cannot be fixed through a greater use of budget. Rather, it's a solution that will be instigated only within the walls of the church. Because the solution doesn't come from government. It's not going to. It's not going to come from government on a local level, um, a state level, or a national level. It's not even going to come from a world power. That's not where the solution lies. The solution lies... Somewhere in the mind and an understanding of God and His will. A spiritual emergency is much more critical than a national emergency. Because a national emergency will be for the life of that emergency. Spiritual emergency addresses things that are eternal. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a little bit of Nehemiah. And I know we have been as a church in Nehemiah before, but we're going back to it. Because the circumstances of Nehemiah's day provides a backdrop for the series. Except that the stage for action is really in our lives. You know, We can read this and say, Nehemiah, this this is the backdrop for the action for you. And really when we look at it and apply it to where we're at as a church or where we're at as a nation, where we're at as the people of God, it's not just about the circumstances of Nehemiah's time. It's about the circumstances of our time. And so we'll read this and, and look at it for several different things. So Nehemiah 1, starting at verse 3, and we're just going to read two verses. It says, They said to me, and this is after the, the Jerusalem was scouted out, They came back and they said to me, and it's Nehemiah, the survivors in the province who returned from the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. And when I heard these words, Nehemiah is recording this, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he goes into what he prayed. And so what, what we see in the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, or this, this this record from Jeremiah, or from Nehemiah, not Jeremiah, from Nehemiah, sorry. What we see in this record from Nehemiah is this idea of things that, that would pertain to us. And we see captivity. How 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 would you rate us on our level of captivity? What are we captive to? I think we're captive to several things. We're captive to to social media. We're captive to political correctness. We're captive to success. What is the definition of that? We're even captive to the idea of tolerance or acceptance. So maybe we're captive to things. The other thing that that I see in this is is a level of distress. It says that they were the people that came back from the exile were in distress. They were in trouble and disgrace. We see fatherlessness in our nation and unparalleled imprisonment. And, and let me just put in a side note here that that although there may be some case for illegitimate imprisonment because of disparity within our legal system. Understand that some of the imprisonment is not because the people didn't do what they said that was done. They're there because of a moral decay that has surrounded somebody's life to where they broke the law and ended up being imprisoned. And there's probably a better chance that it's about moral decay than it is about the the maneuvering in the legal system. It's a problem. Causes distress. And then the, the third part of this is reproach. Reproach. Abortion is claimed a, approximately equal to the amount of lives lost in World War II, 60 million lives since inception or since legalization. Yet, we soften the vocabulary to make it palatable. Palatable. We, we, call it, we call it a health issue. We call it pro-choice. We declare it a matter of human rights. And I'm not so sure God is all in tune with the vocabulary that's been applied to abortion. It's really murder. And when we start understanding what Psalm 139 says, we'll understand the value of human life as God designed it and puts it in place. Congress this week could not pass a bill to protect the life of a baby alive after maybe a botched abortion. They could not pass a bill to keep the baby alive. Is that not troubling? Does that not make the the hair on the back of your neck stand up just a bit to think that it would be okay to keep a baby comfortable outside a mother's womb alive till a decision was made by somebody else whether that baby would stay alive. That's infanticide, but the best definition of that is murder. Those that we count on for health care are taking health care beyond the realm of what they're supposed to do. And our legal system backs it. We have a congresswoman running for the presidency that declared that we may have the moral responsibility to stop having children because it's an economic burden and at best a moral obligation. I'm not so sure that that's not a reproach. This week, our United Methodist brothers and sisters argued the legitimacy of LGBTQIA. I don't how many more letters there'll be on that by the end of the day, but as, as the possibility of a biblically sanctioned lifestyle. And we may know people that have a lifestyle that's represented by one of, those, one of those letters, but God's Word doesn't change because we change our opinion of a lifestyle. And I know that that may disturb. And I've had people, I've had friends... I've had former students that were in my youth group say, this is my lifestyle and I want you to accept it. And I'd have, I'd have to walk up to them and say, I'm not accepting your lifestyle. I'm loving you, but I'm not accepting the lifestyle because I don't think that's of God. It's interesting some of the quotes that came out of the Methodist argument this week. Rudolf Mereb, and you may have read this, he's a delegate from Liberia. Said, he said this, he said, we keep talking about trying to be united, but in fact, we continue to talk about being divided. He said, it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. And although it's painful for the denomination, and it is because there'll be a separation of churches and there'll be an argument within churches that will cause division among the denomination as a whole, For the whole denomination to walk away from biblical principles is, is outrageous and unbiblical. So that's just some of what we deal with. Broken walls and burned gates. Essentially, it's a picture of rubble. And we deal with rubble all the time. Racism could be considered the rubble of our day. And at every point we are reminded that racism is part of our culture and and we we need to deal with it. It's an albatross that divides this nation beyond what we need to. There's no cause for racism within the nation, but there's certainly no cause for racism within the walls of our church. People of every color are welcome in this place. And if you disagree with that, come and see me and bring your Bible. Because I don't see the division in Scripture that we think might be in heaven. In fact, I'm pretty sure we'll be right along Pentecostals and they'll be raising their hands and we'll still be struggling. It's often used for leverage. The rubble is used for leverage. The security that we long for as a people, as believers, somewhat in question. We can agree with Nehemiah that we mourn and we should fast and we should pray. we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we honestly believe that God will not use the option of judgment on a nation as He has done in the past? Will God not use judgment on us? And so we're going to look at a few things and, and try and get through this very quickly. We have an overwhelming need. That's evident. Joel too says this, even now, and this is in the light of people turning away from God and turning back to Baal worship. Joel wrote, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. And return to the Lord your God for His gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich, In faithful love and relents from sending disaster. We have an overwhelming and desperate need for revival and spiritual awakening. So, what's revival? It's the extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God in the hearts of God's people that produces extraordinary results. We really haven't seen revival in great ways nationally since the second great awakening. A.W. Tozier put it in these terms, and he, I think he came, comes to the cause of it. And we live in a culture right now that you would say if we were to look at the cause, we'd say, yeah, that's probably true because we have so many resources available to us. Tozier said this, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. See, apart from intervention, would we ever turn to God? Revival can take place, spiritual awakening can take place. And where do you want it to take place? In your family? At your school? At your job? In the community, where do you want it to take place? If God's taken out of the equation, it's not going to. However, do we, we not just have an overwhelming need, we have a God that is an overpowering force. He's a great God. In Nehemiah 2.8, Nehemiah wrote this, The king granted my request, for I was graciously strengthened by my God. He was a God that was intimately involved in Nehemiah's life and the turning around of that nation, the building up of those walls. And like Nehemiah, we need to cooperate with God. We need to find our hope, a confident hope in Him to move forward. I want to quote Leonard Ravenhill who wrote, Why Does Revival Terry He said this, The church is waiting for the world to become regenerate. We look at the news and we complain about how bad it is around us. He finishes the statement while the world is waiting for the church to become repentant. Just brought it back in the walls, didn't it? G. Campbell Morgan, who was a British evangelist, said this, we cannot organize revival, but we can set our sail to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow Upon his people once again. So, to be ready, to be ready for an overwhelming God to do an incredible work among us is going to take some effort on our part. We have to align with God, not asking God to align with us. Third part of this is revival is costly. It's costly. Deb and I watched a movie this week and. Um, the, the movie's called The First Man and it, it's a movie about Neil Armstrong and, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing you know the story, it's history it's a, it's a view of history told in this movie and one of the scenes in this movie is they come up to him and ask him ask him if he'd be willing to go on this Apollo mission and they say, you'll probably die and then he walks, sure and, he walks, and the, the guy who asked him walks away and I'm like that's a nice way to finish a conversation. You'll probably die on this one. And, I, and all I could think of as I was listening to that is, is just the voice of Eeyore. <laughs> You'll probably die. You know, one, one of those kind of deals. And then, then not too long after that, there's this conversation between the guy who's in charge of the mission and another one of the, um, one of the people in charge of, of that that whole mission thing, but not the astronaut himself. And they are discussing what the protocol is if the astronaut gets stuck on the moon and dies. What's the protocol? Who do we tell first? Who do we tell second? And how is this going to work? And where will the memorial be? All those kind of things. I'm like, that's morbid. But it's true. When you ask an astronaut to get on an Apollo mission rocket with all that fuel under them you're saying you could possibly die it was a are you willing to do that revival is costly if we're willing to have revival we have to be all in we have to suit up get in the middle of that and allow god's fuel to thrust us where we need to go but it's costly you have to be willing to give into the mission nehemiah is willing to give into the mission he was all in. Fourth thing revival is for God. It's the extraordinary movement of the Spirit in the hearts of the people that produces extraordinary results. But spiritual awakening is the extraordinary movement of God that awakens the eyes of the unbelieving and brings them to salvation. So it starts with the church. And the people of God's heart's being awakened. And it moves into the community of unbelievers that says, I need what they have. Nehemiah 1, starting at verse 5, he understood as he prayed that God is a promise-keeping God. It's an awe-inspiring, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And then, He says, your servants, the Israelites, your servants' prayer now that I pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites, I confess the sins or confession or agreement with God that we have committed against you. Both I and my people have done this. We've forsaken what you told us to do. And then the last part in verse 11, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive Excuse me. To the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. So revival comes from God or for it is for God, but it is also from God. It is for God to be glorified through the lives of those that are within the church, but it's also for God to be glorified in the lives of those that are coming to Christ because we've said yes to God. So revival is for God, it is from God. It can only happen from God. Because God is the God of heaven. He's great and awesome. He's the covenant keeper, he's powerful, and he's restorative. What Nehemiah wanted was an invasion of God. Do we want the same? Do we want God to invade our space or do we want to keep God at arm's length? Joel 2.17, and I had asked myself the question when I read this verse. Where is my role in this? He says, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? And so I had to question me. Have I gotten to the place where I'm desperate enough to come to the altar and say, God, be evident in this people so that the world looking on will not see reproach here? We live in a culture where the reproach of churches and leadership is evident. As the Southern Baptist Convention has had to deal with that over the last two weeks and some of the accusations that are made and have been made. It's gone beyond that into churches that don't even necessarily have an affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention. And yet we still have to deal with it. And I can name names, but it's irrelevant. I have to call myself into question and say, am I desperate enough come to the altar and say, God, help me to lead this group of people forward in revival and spiritual awakening for the cause of Christ, for the cause of this church, and for the cause of our community. Joel 2.27 says, You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. It's a great way to end that particular chapter. See, we have a choice of what we want to do. In the time of Joash, when the priest died, now Joash became king when he was just a child, but he had a priest that came alongside him and advised him. And when that priest died, in 2 Chronicles 24, in verse 18, it says that after the priest died, they abandoned the temple of God. They moved away from what God was doing. And then, well, let me just just read it real quick. The king listened to them. He's talking about those that surrounded Joash, not the priests. And they abandoned the temple of the Lord God, their ancestors, and served the Asherah poles and the idols. So there was wrath against Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Nevertheless, He, God, sent them prophets to bring them back to the Lord. They admonished them. And here's the chilling finish to that sentence. But they would not listen. But they would not listen. See, they made a choice. They made a choice to close off their ears to harden their heart and move away from God. And God asks us to soften our heart, to open our ears and to follow Him with abandonment. So I want to ask you this in in this preparation for revival. Because God is able to do some amazing things, but we have to be willing to, to be open to that. We have to say, God, here I am. Surrender. Let your spirit move in this place. We could be like Moses in Exodus 33, where where he said, "God, if you're not going, I ain't going." That's a little bit of a paraphrase, but that's the idea. If you're not moving, I'm not moving. We don't go. If you're not going, we're not going. We have to have that attitude, God. We want you to be in the in our midst and moving in our midst. And we'll take no compromise. So in preparation for revival and spiritual awakening, I want to ask you to do something. There is, uh, if you'll take your bulletin, and you'll look on the flap of the bulletin, there are four statements on there. Now, there may be someone in here, because we've done the Lord's Supper, and we've remembered what Christ has done for us, on the cross, there may be somebody in here that has never accepted Christ as Savior. And, and I realize that you go, well, we talk about judgment to the, this morning, we talk about revival and judgment and all that stuff. Understand that giving your life to Christ secures you for eternity. And it is a good thing. And God wants what's best for us. So if you've never accepted Christ, I would invite you to come forward and learn more about that. To come to the front and say, I want to know what it is to follow Christ. And we'll explain it to you. But for those of us that know Christ, we're in this position of being, the church is being called to a time of revival. And the four options for us are are in your bulletin. They're praying regularly for revival and spiritual awakening. Will you commit to doing that? For the next 40 days, because we're right at 40 days from the beginning of our weekend, will you commit to praying regularly for revival and spiritual awakening? Second part of that, would you be willing to fast one time per week? There's a lot of different ways you can fast. Some of you have dietary issues and can't do that. You could fast from something else. Fast from social media. It, that won't hurt anybody. Some anxiety maybe, but it will be okay. But fast one time per week as, a, as an indication of your focus on the Lord and spiritual matters. The third way you can participate is to attend the Awakening Weekend to encourage the body here at EBC and participate in God's activity and there's a phrase at the end of this that is significant. Unless hindered by things beyond my control. We used to call that providentially hindered. But if you have to look up the word, you may, you may not even know what it means. So things beyond your control. So commit to being here that weekend. The fourth thing is looking forward with anticipation and expectation that God will be glorified through this process. I'm going to be positive about what could happen in in these weeks of preparation and in this weekend of awakening. And so I'm going to ask you if you are willing to take that flap, to check off the things that you're willing to do, to actually sign it and date it. I'm not going to come back to you with a photocopy and say, you didn't do this. I can't keep track of you. It's kind of between you and God. But it's a way of stating your commitment to wanting God to move in revival and spiritual awakening in this body and in our community. So would you join me in prayer? And then as God leads you with that tear off, if you'll fill that out and the altar will be open, I'm going to ask that you come and place that somewhere on the altar this morning. And we'll just collect them and hold them. And out of those commitments, let's see what God does. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.